The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in August 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. If you sit in a theater and you look in the program, you see credits for set designer, costume designer, lighting designer, and sound designer. Our first ever sound designer guest today on Downstage Center, Tony Miola, who has designed the sound for Wicked, The Lion King, Revival of Man of La Mancha, Sweet Smell of Success, the revival about a decade ago of Kiss Me Cade, Sound of Music, 20-some-odd years ago, Anything Goes at Lincoln Center, many, many other shows, just by way of example of introducing Tony. Hi, Tony, and welcome to Downstage Center. Hi, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, if you look further into a program, not only do you see sound designer, you see associate sound designer, assistant sound designer, sound operator, production sound, sound engineer, all sorts of sound credits. So I guess we should start by defining terms. What is a sound designer? What do you do? What do all these other miscellaneous people do? Well, the sound designer is the boss, mm-hmm. for one thing. I'm the one who says uh, where microphones go, where loudspeakers go, what sound effects happen, where they happen. Um, I hire the production sound engineer, also known in New York anyway as the mixer sound engineer, A1, Audio One that is. And uh, let me see. Assistant associate are relative terms, not relative, they're depending on who's – I tend to hire assistants until they work for me for a long time and then I call them associates. Mm -hmm. So uh, for instance, my associate Kai Harada has been with me a really long time. And uh, he just does more than – he doesn't get coffee, let's say. So. But if you look in the theater, the person that you might see in the rear of the theater operating the board, that is not the sound designer. That's the mixer or the sound engineer, I guess. That's correct. Mm-hmm. So the sound designer, though, I, I'm, I'm gathering is responsible for everything that the audience hears in the theater. Is that basically Yes, correct? absolutely. And we work with directors, choreographers, authors, orchestrators, stars, ensemble members, everybody – Basically, um, all the music people, especially on a musical, and uh, usually shows are approached uh, show first, theater second. What does the show need? Uh, how big is it? Is it a musical? How many microphones? Is there an orchestra? Where is the orchestra? Uh, then you put together what you really need for a sh- the show, and then you design it for the theater. So you're not you're sort of doing two designs because not only do you have to serve the needs of the show, but you have to serve everyone in the theater. And theaters are so different, especially on Broadway. I mean, Wicked is in the Gershwin, which is very large. It's huge. And it's on two levels. Take the Court Theater, where I've done a couple of shows. It's smallish at about a thousand seats, but it has three. And every single person, whether there's two levels or three levels or a thousand or two thousand people, everybody wants to hear the show. And so the front end of the show, which is microphones, sound effects, shows needs, is one design. And the back end of the show, which is loudspeakers, where they go, how they point equalizers, is the second part of it. And everybody in the theater wants to hear the same show, whether they're sitting in the first row of the orchestra or the last row of the balcony. They all have to be able to hear it, and relatively at the same time, I would assume. Well, yeah, Um, (laughs) except for you can't hear it exactly at the same time if you're in the back. Yeah. It takes a little bit. It takes some milliseconds to get back there. But but really what we aid in telling the story, and storytelling is my number one job. 
Can you explain that a little more? Because certainly I think people can understand the amplification aspects of sound, just making it possible to be heard, not how it's done, but that it needs to be done in, in theaters. But how do you approach a show in terms of storytelling? What is what is your process? When I I was a clarinetist, and I went from being an okay clarinetist to an a pretty good clarinetist with uh, a particular teacher that I had. And we were doing the Mozart concerto, working on it. And he said to me, every single note of this concerto has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you have to approach this whole concerto note by note by note by note by note. And what I say to sound mixers now is every single word that's spoken on stage has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you have to hear every single word. And that's where we start. And if I that, – that's, that's how we get the story directly and literally out to the audience. But what if you have someone on stage that's speaking to themselves, something not in real life? Do you know they're going through some conflict within their mind? Usually in my world, it's a song and it's someone singing alone by themselves. That might be enhanced by a little reverb or a little effect on the voice or putting the voice in maybe a different place in the theater than the normal dialogue in the show is. That is storytelling. That is helping the story. As the lighting designer helps tell the story when, for instance, when during the day, do you know, nighttime, daytime, moonlight, you know, we we can help by where the person is, who they're talking to, in a very sort of esoteric way, but sometimes it's very effective. So when you get hired by the director of the show, what's the first thing you do? You read the book? First thing I do is read the script mm-hmm. a couple of times. And but I don't always get hired by the director. Sometimes uh-huh. I'm hired by the producer, uh-huh. and um, and I talk to the but I talk to the director about what they want. Do you know uh, you can't approach Rodgers and Hammerstein like you approach Elton John? Do you know it's two genre? Excuse me. And um, you also have to know what the director wants the show to sound like. Do you know what 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 is it? Is there a concept? Are, are we in a Excuse me, a rock and roll concert? Are we? Uh, are we? Is it? Is everything going to be absolutely live or or real as it can be? Is is it that? Is it a little bit of, uh, say, Broadway musical boost, which is kind of natural but kind of a little up? Um, you know, you t- try to get a feel. Those things sometimes change in production, but but uh, you try to just get a feel for what the director wants from the show. But then, of course, there's a lot of other voices. And I would guess a lot of what you do depends on who those voices are. If you have a very strong voice, it's one thing versus somebody who has a lesser voice, a softer voice. Absolutely. Oh, well, you mean on stage. On stage, yeah. You were speaking of other voices in the production team. Right. Uh, right. Uh (laughs) Ones who are louder sometimes or or (laughs) have a little more influence, but not always. Um, But on the production team, too, you know, I mean, if you're doing a revival with with dead authors – it's a little different than doing a show with live authors, do you know, because the director chooses the interpretation very often on a show that that um, th- that there's no one around to say no. Uh, you know what I mean? There's um, doing it with live authors is a completely different thing because there's more of a committee. So who is that committee that, that you deal with? The director, certainly, but the lighting, lighting designer, I would assume, is somebody you have to work closely with. Absolutely. Well, I – well – the three other designers, well, if you include wig designer too, we work 
closely together. I work with the costume and wig designers closely about where microphones go and wires and microphone heads and microphone packs. Lighting designer is usually more about real estate in the beginning and where I can hang loudspeakers and and where, you know, it's always a fight. You know, every pipe wants to be filled with lights or loudspeakers. And not necessarily a fight, but it's, you know, there's only so much space in the theater. And with scenery, I mean, I most of the time, microphones and loudspeakers aren't a part of telling a story. Most of the shows that I do. So I try to hide things. And very often, if there's a way to get loudspeakers hidden in in the scenery, I do it. Uh, Wicked's a good example of that, um, where we have loudspeakers all over the proscenium, but they have vines over them and they're painted. And, and uh, Eugene Lee and Eddie Pierce have been, they're just incredible about in integrating those things and making it all part of the scenery. Well, you, you raise the point of, of wigs, which begs the larger question of, you know, we see we see microphones, if you get up close, we see them on people's foreheads, we see them on people's cheeks, we see them sometimes extending right down in front of their mouths. How much of that is because you need it to achieve the sound you want, and how much of that is a conceptual decision because of the reality of needing microphones? Well, the only time that I've used what people call headset mics or Madonna mics was on Smokey Joe's Cafe. And Jerry Zachs was the director. And we spoke early on about the sound of the show. And the sound of that music is close mic'd. And close mic'd isn't a mic on the forehead or on the chest. So I asked him, you know, if he was going to use handhelds. And, and he wanted the freedom of using actors using two hands. So we decided on using headset mics because of the sound of that music. And I thought it was okay because we weren't telling a story in Smokey Joe's Cafe. There's no plot. It really is a review. Uh, the, you know, there's little lines throughout it, but it, it's a review. So, you know, usually there's not a microphone in the story, and there wasn't a story here, so I thought it was conceptually okay to use those. So what does close mic do in terms of sound versus a mic somewhere else further away? Does it give you a different quality of sound? Well, yeah. I mean, if I go back here like this away from the microphone, I bet the listeners hear my voice differently than if I'm up here like this. And up here like this, of course, y you get much more of the voice. You get high end and low end. And as I went back like this before, the low end of my voice probably goes away. So what happens is when... On shows with uh, lavalier microphones, which normally aren't worn on the chest anymore, they're worn on the head, they they are um, omnidirectional microphones. The, the microphone I'm speaking into, I assume, is a unidirectional microphone. Unidirectional, one direction. Omni means all directions. Correct. And uh, the sound quality changes a great deal. I mean, when you move that mic six inches away from the mouth especially straight up or straight down, it's much more difficult to get a full, rich sound because it's not coming directly and closely into a microphone. Um, another thing that that changes is it, it's, you know, radio is one thing. Radio, we're um, going direct to wires. There's no loudspeakers that are hearing this microphone. In a live situation, you have a loudspeaker very close to a microphone, and that always... Um, gives you the risk of having feedback. But before feedback, the sound starts to sound terrible. Uh, you know, as it approaches feedback, it sounds like it's in a tunnel. You get, if you have two people on stage with 
two different microphones on, you get time differences, and then you know ultimately feedback, which sounds really horrible. But uh, with close miking, it's much much easier to control feedback and tunnel sounds. But since very little of what sound designers do is close mic, it must present a, a great challenge to have good quality sound to the audience that sounds good, represents the, the actor's voice as well, and still avoid all the technical pitfalls. Absolutely. It's very, very difficult. And I think, I think people don't understand. And I, uh, and I think they just don't understand the physics. And excuse me, I don't think people in – a lot of people in the business understand the physics either. I – developed a seminar a couple of years ago that I teach at schools and mostly to acting and directing majors, not to sound people. And it, I have two singers and a pianist, and they wear three microphones apiece in different places. And I have them roam all over the stage and sing into each other's mics and, and sing the same thing over again using different mics in different places to show people what the difference is. And, and very often on a stage... You wouldn't have an actor walk through a wall. You wouldn't have an walk, actor walk out of light. But very often a director will say, well, I want them to sing, but I want them to be, you know, two inches apart singing into each other's faces. And that, you know, that it, though it may be real looking, you put somebody's face next to their voice and all of a sudden it sounds like their hand is in front of their face because it's bouncing off the other face and coming into the microphone at a slightly different time. So people so getting people to kind of understand the physics of sound is one of my jobs as well to uh just let them recognize that I'm not being difficult that it's it's physics of it's nature that's being difficult. But does that include working with the directors and the actors to educate them? Yeah, well, yeah, if two people are all over each other's faces singing, you know, you have to get up there on stage sometimes or or get up there on stage and and show them where the limits are where they can and where they can. And, and if you have a show where um, the actors actually come into the audience or come around the proscenium, you have to be really, really careful about um, where they roam and where they go because they could be sounding fine and then they turn their head to the left and their microphone is going right into a speaker and you get feedback. I dare say in the 200-plus programs we've done, this was the first time physics has ever been mentioned. How much of your job is artistry and how much of it is technical savvy well that that's always been the question with sound designers i had to take a physics course for my major in college technical production but i think there's an art to the way you have you make someone sound on stage there's an art to where you find a location for a microphone how you hide it how you uh uh how you get it out, how you EQ the microphone, how you EQ that is bass and treble, EQ the microphone, EQ the loudspeakers, EQ the house. Um, there's a great art to it. Um, it's it's really not so much different than lights, except for lights are just output. We're input and output. Lights you can see, sound you can't see. If um, These days in the theater, there's a lot of moving lights and uh, color changers. And the moving lights and color changes all have fans. And what they do is raise the noise floor in the theater. So instead of a quiet theater, 
like this studio is very, very quiet. Imagine putting three fans into the studio now, and those three fans have a certain amount of volume, and then I would have to increase my voice to speak over that volume. So in many theaters now, we've raised the noise floor with the noise of lighting. So we um, have to start a little higher. I often, when I'm having a hard time about that, I compare sound to lighting, and I say, well, it's kind of like us having a little light on each loudspeaker. When we have many loudspeakers, it never gets dark. It only gets too dim. You don't think of that. No one thinks of that. But it's a big deal for us. And it's, you know, it would be a big deal if we only got to dim, you wouldn't have a blackout. But when you don't get to pianissimo, I think you have to go much higher, which I think creates a problem. Well, you mentioned having taken a physics class. So let's jump back. We'll, we'll come back to the details of your job. But how did you become interested in, in theater, and how did you become interested in sound design specifically? I was always, from when I was, um, I guess, in junior high school, I, was inter- I became interested in theater. And I had been playing music most of my life. I started on violin, and then I added clarinet. And then I, um, in high school... I, our high school theater was a bus and truck company stop in Middletown, New York, so that um, a lot of tours, a lot of legit tours would come through and... And play your high school? Right. Well, they played, they used the high school auditorium right. at night and, you know, people would come and see the bus and truck of John Raitt in Kiss Me Kate. People would come and see Dance Theater of Harlem to see the bus and truck of Pippin, Godspell. Um, all these things in the three years I was in high school were shows that came through my theater, our theater. And I was the stage manager, quote-unquote, the junior and senior year, my junior and senior years there, and which meant, in my case, being in charge of the student stage crew. And sometimes in the case of when a professional show came through, keeping the janitors out of the theater while they lag-bolted torment, or, um, booms into the floor. So. <laughs> but um, from there... I went to Orange County Community College in my hometown as a music major, transferred as a music major to Ithaca College, where I thought I could be a music major and minor in drama, and realized when I got there that I didn't want to spend six hours a day in a practice room, that I wanted to spend six hours a day hanging lights and stage managing. And so I did. I changed my major, and um, a mentor, a mentor from my... uh, from Orange County Community College um, named Bigelow Green guided me to New York and basically said, well, if you're going to be in the theater, you have to be in New York. So he um, got me an interview at the New York Shakespeare Festival, and I went down in February of 75 and interviewed. And uh, in late April, was told that I had a job as an electrician for the summer. I got there, and I was told that if their brand new show, A Chorus Line, wasn't a hit, that they might have to lay me off in the beginning of August. So that worked And the rest (laughs) is history. As they say. It did. And and halfway through the summer, at that point where they would have laid me off, they needed a sound person. I was an electrician to go in the mobile theater, which doesn't exist anymore, which used to tour the boroughs. And, uh, And I had... Uh, worked in a stereo store in high school, and it was more sound on my resume than anyone, any of the other electricians, so they moved me over, <laughs> and I really liked it. 
And it was really great because I went back to my senior year at Ithaca with a job waiting for me at the New York Shakespeare Festival, which was the best place in the world to work in the theater in in the mid-'70s as far as I am concerned. Why? Why do you say that? Well, Chorus Line was the first show I worked on there. And then when I went back for Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough was opening – I mean, the park was filled with stars like Meryl Streep and Kevin Kline and Sam Waterston. and it, it, Everywhere you turn, Diane Weist and everywhere, you know, downtown, uptown was just a great place. And also the it was in addition to the Delacorte, the Mobile and the Public Theater, there was Lincoln Center, which at the time was run by the Shakespeare Festival, which had Three Penny Opera with Raul Julia and then Phil Bosco in the park. Did you learn sound design in college or did you learn it more or less on the job? Once on you, the job. Yeah. I took I, I took three credits of sound. It's funny to me now because I think we had a th- one three-credit course in sound design and now I teach and I at, at Cincinnati Conservatory of Music a couple of years ago I sat down in front of 16 kids five of whom were graduate sound design majors and the rest were undergraduate. My first thought was where are they all going to work? Mm-hmm. But, well, it, this raises an interesting question because the con- the idea of sound design, that sound design was a distinct discipline in the theater, is relative to something like set design still even a new concept. People only started to become aware of it perhaps in the 70s, really. I think somebody said the earliest sound design credit on Broadway might have been in the mid-60s. How much was it established as a discipline at that point, or was it still emerging as its own specialization? Well, when I started, well, in the summer of 75, Chorus Line was designed by Abe Jacob. And um, most of the shows we did at the public were in-house designed. But they they were, Roger Jay, who was my boss, was usually credited as sound designer. Um, but he was your boss, so he was... He was the, the audio master. He okay. was called the audio master. But he would design um, most of the shows that we did down there. But, you know, at the same, it, it's the same thing with lighting, really, because there weren't really lighting designers until Gene Rosenthal. And I'm not sure exactly of the history of lighting design, but I think it was really the early 60s that lighting design was first um, credited well, lighting design very often was done by the set designer. They and the electrician. Put, put up the, working with an electrician right. to put up the lights to light the set the way they wanted it right. seen. So, but, but sound design was emerging. So you mentioned taking a class, but it was still a relatively new discipline. Well, and in college too, because at that time, and I actually think it's a better thing, you didn't have elaborate sound systems for amplification in school. So most of the sound design was about plays and doing sound effects and soundscapes rather than amplifying musicals. And these days, there's more of that, but still a heavy emphasis. And I think a lot because in so many schools, um, professors don't have the experience to teach sound design, really, um, the amplification part of sound design. Well, did the the job that you, you now have, the sound design job that didn't really exist back when you were in college, did that develop because the technology changed over the past three or four decades that it made it more possible to do more intricate sound designs, more intricate uh, miking, more intricate sound effects, that sort of thing? Oh, absolutely. When I started at the Shakespeare Festival, they had two sets of 
uh, wireless microphones. And these were early Sennheiser wireless that had three 9-volt batteries in the bottom. Now, you can imagine how wide that is. And that, that's the kind of battery you use in a smoke detector? Correct. Yeah, okay. And it was probably twice as long as it was wide. Uh-huh. So it was the size of maybe three packs of cigarettes. And half of them had short antennas, that is about 10 inches long, and half of them had 36-inch, 31-inch antennas. So uh, in the Delacorte Theater, I remember in shows like Henry V and Measure for Measure, when you would go in and have to change mics, because we only had, each set was 16 mics, and you could only use 12 of those 16, because you all, you had a lot of failures. So you always had to have four spares standing by. And I ran mics backstage at the Delacorte. And, you know, after the battle scene in Henry V, you'd have to go into the armor and pull out these microphones and 30 inches of antenna mm-hmm. and get them over to somebody else to use for the following scene. And now, of course, we put them in wigs. The whole thing, everything's small enough that we can put transmitter and microphone. In fact, this new show I'm doing, Vanities, we have two transmitters in each girl's wig, See, in each woman's wig. And also two microphones? Two microphones. Redundancy right. in case one fails? Yeah, they're always on stage. They never leave the stage. So uh-huh. it's going be quite difficult to lose a microphone in the middle of the show. Uh-huh. So coming back to this era at, at the Shakespeare Festival, you said you actually went back to school and then went back to the public? Well, I was. it was a summer job. Right. But then you went back once Then I went right back to the public. Uh-huh. And at what point did you move from being an electrician swapping microphones to beginning to actually design? I was at the public and Chorus Line was happening. Of course, by that point, when I came back to New York, Chorus Line had moved to the Schubert Theater and it had started to have national companies and they were looking for sound people. And Otz Munderloh, who was the production sound engineer of Chorus Line, tapped the public for sound people, and I went uptown and started learning Chorus Line. And um, I left the public, and I started mixing shows. Chorus Line was the first, and then Ballroom. And I remember Mama. And I went back to Chorus Line a little bit. I supervised the national companies for a while, and then mixed a few more Broadway shows until 84 or 85, when, um, after working for Otz for several years, decided to go out on my own. Went through all of my savings, and because uh, it's funny, when you do one job in the theater, even though it's so close to the job, ne- you know, the next job up, people don't see you in that job. You've got to convince somebody to give you the, right. give you the next break. So, right. who, so who gave you your big break? Joe Harris, on um, a show called Ned and Jack. And I was mixing I had been mixing for Joe for a long time actually and that was in the early 80s but then um, Joe Harris was a producer yes. uh, general manager general manager right and then um, the I think my biggest break came in 87 when Jerry Zachs and Eddie Strauss Eddie Strauss was the musical director Jerry Zachs the director of Anything Goes with Patti LuPone at the Vivian Beaumont and I guess I did an okay job there because people thought it sounded good. And, you know, that's when it started, and I started getting work. Let me ask you a question. I'll, I'll segue, and we'll, we'll come back to some of the other shows. But there is this issue that so often comes up about people longing for the days when you heard the unamplified voice in a Broadway theater. And certainly, because of that, anything goes. Patti Lapone seems like somebody who could belt it out with or without a microphone. What's your feeling now about 
the effect of sound design on performers? This is so multi-layered because it always comes up, and it's a question that I'm asked all the time in many different ways. But first, my first reaction to that is uh, I long for the natural voice as well, but I'm not sure that even with Ethel Merman that the people in the back of the balcony heard every word. I'm not sure that actors were directed the same way 40 years ago. If you look at the golden age of Broadway on PBS, look at Tony and Maria. It's one of the few, uh, you know, there's not very much coverage of Broadway shows because you can't film them. But watch them sing tonight. They're both on the fire escapes. And they do not look at each other once. Everything is sung to the audience, which looks to us now so unreal. And that's what you had to do. That's one of the things you had to do then. You couldn't turn sideways into the other performer. God knows you couldn't turn stand backwards. Not at all. And uh, there's a lot of lot of different things. There, there, there are many things the microphone has allowed, and some people like them and some people don't. And, you know, I'm sure in an audience of a thousand people, you know, there may be, I don't know, 10% that long for the days of of no amplification, but there's probably 80% that grew up with microphones. And, you know, I, I can't, going back to what I said earlier about how you do a design differently for Roger Rogers and Hammerstein than you do for Elton John. Elton John is based on electronic music. It's based on people singing into microphones. That's Elton John music. Bass guitars, electric guitars, electronic keyboards are all, cannot be done. Um, like you take big band music. You can't do big band music without microphones. Nobody ever in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s ever sang in front of a big band without a big microphone in front of their face because you can't hear them. You can't hear somebody over four trumpets, four trombones, five saxes, drums, piano, bass. It's just not, you know, it's not done. And and people expect miracles, you know. People expect to have all of that with no microphone seen. And I, I think that's a lot to ask. I also think, and a long time ago, I invited a New York Times critic to come to Les Mis when we were redoing the orchestra because he had, he had um, pretty regularly been tearing sound designers apart and recently had written a review that um, degrading the sound designer for the sound of the orchestra and the amplification for the orchestra pit. And I invited him to come to rehearsal and he didn't come but I wanted him to hear what a Broadway orchestra sounds like in an orchestra pit with no microphones and I think most people today would be very very surprised to hear what you hear because you hear drums and you hear brass and that's about it and um, you don't realize that they're in a pit and that's what it sounded like when you listen to Ethel Merman and Gypsy on the LP that's not what it sounded like in the theater. I'm not sure that you want it to sound like that, but that's not what it sounded like in the theater. You can't hear strings and, and all that stuff direct on as you do in the recording. They're in the orchestra pit. You also had then, let me see, um, my one and only in 1983 had 27 pieces in the St. James pit, including two pianos. That was, I think, eight or ten strings and others. Now you don't have that many. Now on shows... One show I did has five percussionists and four string players. Now, you can't have 
guess who wins? You know, <laughs> five drummers, four string players, two violins, viola, cello. The drums win. So by taking away microphones, you take away a lot of what people have come to expect in a theater, not only from voice, but from a lot of other things like the orchestra. Well, you mentioned Anything Goes, which was at the Vivian Beaumont, Wicked, which still is at the Gershwin, both relatively new theaters, new designs within the last several decades. Most of the Broadway theaters are very old designs from the early part of the 20th century, long before amplification, long before body mics and all that. Does the nature of the theater affect what you do, and how does it affect it? Well, hugely. Uh And um, with all due respect to acousticians in the world, the older theaters perhaps because they could be built so ornately for relatively little money then, are oftentimes much better. On the road, it's difficult because very often you go to a city in the middle of the country and that theater is not only used for musicals, but it's used for plays, it's used for orchestra, it's used for operas, it's used for lectures. So they're multi-purpose. And, and every one of those different things needs different acoustics. It, it, it actually makes me laugh when, when I hear somebody say, oh, that theater has great acoustics. Well, for what? For voice? For opera? For orchestra? Because for, they're all different. And it's all, not one size fits all. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, so many are either mechanically or electronically altered these days, depending on what venue, what um, piece is in the venue. Well, these, these older or ornate theaters... Were they designed with sound in mind, knowing that there's no amplification to help embellish the sound? Or were they just designed to look pretty? No, they're both. Uh-huh. Absolutely both. And they were designed for an orchestra in an orchestra pit and, and a cast or a group of people on stage singing. And um, what we've done in many theaters to add more seats in the last several years, we've we've messed with some of those acoustics. Some of our major theaters have been altered from what they were. Mezzanines extended, uh, columns removed, more seats added, different places, and all those things affect, you know, what you hear. I mean, uh, one of the, there are many, many great Broadway theaters, and uh, I am very comfortable working in most of them, but some of them some of the newer ones are more difficult. Do you have a, any particular favorite old theaters that just have a good sound to them? Kind of like, like a Stradivarius has uh, a good sound. The, the new Amsterdam is wonderful. Uh-huh. Um, I also like, of the newer theaters, I really like the Marriott Marquis. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I love the, the, like the Schubert, the Court, the Lyceum. The, prob- probably my favorite is the Al Hirschfeld uh, because I did, I think, six shows in a row there in the 90s, and I know it so well. The orchestra pit in this theater also is just unbelievable. It's all wood. It's shaped like a, a band shell, and the the um, pit rail is all wooden, and it's open, and it's just, it's where we did Kiss Me Kate, which I just love the sound of, and, and I love the sound of the orchestra and the sound of music we did there, and it was just it's a lovely theater. Any theaters you say to yourself, please don't put me in that theater. I hope yes. I not to. <laughs> <laughs> Want to name names? <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's a, it's a good segue to my next question. When you are approached about doing a show, what are the things that help you to decide whether or not you want to do that show? Perhaps what theater it's in, but is it about the material? Is it about the artists you're going to work with? What, what are your choices? 
You know, that's changed over the years because uh, I used to try to do every show that was offered to me. And now I think it's more about the people that are doing the show. Even, I mean, you know, if it, if it's inter- if the work is interesting, that is uh, not quite secondary, but almost. Because it becomes about, you know, it's all collaboration. And if you're working with collaborators, it can be a wonderful, wonderful thing. And uh, people who are good collaborators are more fun to work with. And I think oftentimes you have better product at the end. So who are, who are some of those frequent collaborators for you? Jerry Zachs is certainly, I see his name a few times over your resume. Yes, absolutely. But it, it's not just directors. Mm-hmm. It's designers as well. Um, I mentioned before Eugene Lee and Eddie Pierce on on uh, Wicked and and Ken Posner and Peter Kazarowski and Anna Luizos, who I'm working with for the first time on Vanities. And, and uh, there's so many... Um, and let me ask you, what about, since you do so many musicals, do you develop relationships? How, what's your interaction with the composer in particular? Composer is usually a very big interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen Schwartz on Wicked every night. I, my, The whole team, the sound team on Wicked, have degrees in music, they, the original sound team. And so we enjoyed, I think, a really good relationship with Stephen because he could say, you know, the bassoon in bar 236 of this, you know, before the decrescendo, before the sostenuto, you know, it, everybody knew what he was talking about. And um, he's very meticulous with notes. And it's very, I think it was easier for him to give meticulous music and sound notes to people who have master's degrees in music, like my operator. The orchestrator, too, is usually right in there with the composer, of course because um, it's a very huge part of what what you hear. Hmm. Well, Wicked um, just opened recently in Australia with yeah. the same design team, yourself and all the other designers, uh, which I'm sure was intentional that uh, you wanted to use, use the same people. What sort of special challenges then for doing the same show with the same team but in a totally different theater, totally different part of the world, and any other unique challenges to working in a different country? Well, yeah, in this particular case, it's the, the limited ability to travel there because it's so expensive. Uh-huh. So you have to do it remotely and with as few trips as possible. That's the number one thing. For us, for me, it's really tough in Germany, in Japan, in um, even in Australia. Uh, I couldn't understand – you know, I don't – I speak a little German. I speak no Japanese. So I'm not exactly sure all the words are being heard all the time. I mean, I can – I think they are or I don't think they are, but I'm not exactly sure. And in Australia, for some reason, most of the people are doing American accents. And I believe it's a thing they do there when they do musicals because so many of their musicals come from America. But it's – to me, it was became difficult because – some people can do a good American accent. Some people can't do. And what happens is inflections get changed. And sometimes I couldn't understand because the, of the change of inflection um, or, or the bad, you know, maybe not necessarily a great accent. Um, that was a challenge. Other than that, the crew was spectacular and the cast is spectacular. But sometimes it was difficult and and. You know, I'd have to say, hey, can they? Can that lyric be hear, heard? You know, ask my sound operator. So, so what do you do then? 
I mean, can you change the the volume level or something? Well, no. I mean, I think in that case, you don't want to change the volume level. It's not a question of volume. It's a question of intelligibility. You have to go to the director. In this case, Lisa Leguillo, who who is the associate director for Wicked, then deals with the performers. And And to ask them to enunciate or? or Absolutely, yeah. Uh Yeah, that's where you start. It's the same thing in the orchestra pit. You know, if if something isn't being heard, you, you don't know whether that microphone m- might not be loud enough or the player might not be playing it loud enough or maybe he's backed off from a mic. There's so many variables. But I always like to start from the source and get it right at the source, and then it's easier to get it right through the electronics. Sticking with a show like Wicked, which obviously has played New York, obviously has played other countries, obviously has played tours, as a show tours... What challenges does that present to you? You're working with the same material, but in different venues, different theaters. In different houses, and yeah. that's huge. And what you, you can't design for every theater because there's just no time or money to, to you know put a new sound system in for in every single theater. So what you do is you look at all of the theaters collectively and try to find a sound system that you can adjust and adapt to different theaters, larger or smaller. But... It's kind of one size fits all with a few additions. And with a show like Wicked, you have a, a small advance amount of equipment that goes ahead. So you can you can add a few things if you need to a few days before the majority of the show gets loaded into the theater. You know, if the balcony is particularly deep or if there's, a you know, four levels instead of two or three. Do you yourself travel with the show? No. So you have to design it sitting in New York, knowing what the theater is. Right. Is that what you do? Right. And then when the show gets there, who does what? There are three people. Um, there are two that travel with the national tour, and they pick up uh, usually six people, I think, on the load-in, and then there's a house person generally. There's two operate the show. There's two backstage and one out front. And these people make the, the, the adjustments necessary right. at that theater. One person, right. Collectively, they do, but in terms of operating the show, two people move microphones around backstage and and correct problems, and one person mixes. But starting, it's quite difficult often because you you do have – there is an extra person that does the moves. So there's always an extra person there who can run through the house, you know, during sound check in the first show to make sure that everybody's being heard. But you're kind of designing a theater that you're not at the theater, you're not able to hear the acoustics, you're not able to really – in your own ear, in your own head, hear it. So it must be difficult to sit in your office and and design this. Well, you 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 don't really. Uh-huh. What you do is you you teach the crew to know what you want, and then they go for it. I mean, I co- go out a few times a year and check on the shows, but but they have to know what it's supposed to sound like, and and they do, and <clears throat> sometimes they can get there, and sometimes it's difficult. I want to talk about another part of the design process. I had seen you about a year ago, right around this time, and at that moment you were immersing yourself in disco recordings of the 70s because you were preparing to do the Ritz. But that's another aspect of sound design because that, although the Ritz did have some musical sequences, there, was, there, were, there were other parts of it that you were dealing with existing music and how that played into a show. Can you talk a little about doing sound design in that case for what is a play versus a musical well, and what that involves. That particular play is 
an anomaly because within the play there's a there's a big musical number right. with an orchestra and a singer and a couple of singers and um but normally in a play a play has sound effects and or music and a musical just has all that plus the orchestra and singing so generally in terms of doing plays they're much they take less time um you don't the orchestra never comes in, and, and sometimes it's nice to do a play because the orchestra never arrives. And I, I, you know, you also don't have that wonderful feeling at the end of the show of hearing the orchestra. But, but uh, it, it, it's you're more concerned with sound effects, music, than you are with the the sound of the show. Do you know plays generally? And I don't like to mic plays. Um, plays, you're you're going at them from a different angle. There's a whole other world. That you try to create ambience. I mean, you do that in musicals too, but you, you um, don't have to think about amplification as much. Can you explain a little of what you mean by ambience for people who wouldn't know? Well, you, ambience is where you where you are. In, in a musical, music does a whole lot of ambience, of telling you where you are, of telling the story of where you're going and stuff. And in a play, you may need sound effects, generally sound effects, to tell you where you are. You know, in the Ritz at the top of the show, there was a thunderclap, and then rain as they came through the door. It was pouring rain outside. And then they would open another door, and there was a thump, thump, thump of the disco that was inside. And um, I think you knew where you were, not only by the scenery and the lighting, but by the cars honking outside, the cab driver honking outside, the all those things. Well, in point of fact, not even just where you were, but when you were, were some right. of those indications. Well, absolutely. I mean, the thump, thump, thump of disco and, you know, throw some of that music in and you instantly know, you know, it's the late 70s or early 80s. Then do you create those sound effects? Do you do you purchase pre-recorded sound effects? Uh, both. Or, well, uh, you know, both. I think when you, when you get around as long as I have now, you have quite a bank of stuff that but you've read, used over the years. I read you went to Salzburg to capture certain sounds I did. for that Sound of Music production. I did. I did. Where did you read that? That's funny. We we, we did our homework. Oh, but, wow. But that's, what was it about needing to go there? And ultimately, do you think the audience truly appreciates what you've done well, for the verisimilitude. Well, at least one person it. did. At one least person. one person did. <laughs> one person wrote and said that uh, she knew exactly where she was at the top of the show because she was born in Salzburg and heard, and knew the bells. And the director wanted to have the nuns who were um, singing vespers at the top of the show come from the rear of the theater. And I wanted to know what vespers sounded like in Salzburg. And since... I had friends in Vienna, one who was born in Salzburg. I went to see them, and and uh, they took me to Salzburg, and we went up to the Abbey, and we asked if we could, if I, I asked if I could record Vespers, and they wouldn't let me record it, but they let us come in and sit through Vespers. So I got an idea of what it sounded like there. And then the next morning, I was walking with my friend through a cemetery in the middle of town and it was Sunday morning and at 10 o'clock every church bell rang in Salzburg and I had my dat player with me and I recorded the church bells and that's what ended up starting the sound of music all the church bells at house to half and then into vespers and I loved it and and I loved it that it was authentic for me you know so and it was so nice to get that letter from the woman who exactly knew 
So, so as we sit at a, especially a play where it's perhaps more obvious than in a musical, all those little sounds we're hearing is what you do. That's what a sound designer does is create those sounds and, right. and put them into some sort of a playback system. Right. And it's not – I mean they're not always our ideas. Uh-huh. You know, the director – very often you'll have a director who will come with a full sound effects and music list beforehand and then other times they'll they'll think of things or I'll think of things and – and uh, what we hear and where we hear it and how we hear it. Sometimes you're not even aware of some of the things. That well, let's take a very common sound effect, the telephone ringing. Obviously, it's important whether it's a cell phone or an old telephone for the right. 1940s, what the sound is like. But where does that sound come from? you put a little speaker there? It all is depen- it from the well, no, telephone itself? I like real sounds, so I tend to not like to put speakers in places for the uh-huh. sounds of telephones. If they're new telephones, that's a different story because every new telephone is a speaker. It's not a, a bell. There's no bell in phones these days. There's, you know, it's coming out of a loudspeaker. I mean, even it's a digital file, right? So, I would rather have a telephone. And, and when we did the Ritz, as a matter of fact, there was there were two payphones in the show, one in the opening scene and one later on. And I put bells. You know, in the olden days, the pro- props people would get phones and they had bells in them. And so you get a telephone ringer and you make those phones ring. And nowadays, though, you get phones and there's no bells, so you put bells behind them or near them or that always complicates things in the case of the first scene that phone flies out you know at at the end of the scene so you have to wire it through you know the pulleys and everything so that it the bell itself flies out with with everything else so it gets a little more complicated well as we're talking about complicated obviously technology has changed enormously over the time of your career. And I'm wondering whether the advent of digital technology and getting away from tape, has that made your job more complex, more rewarding, more diverse? Do you know, the specifically going from tape, for me, going from tape to mini-disc, and there were some things in between, but mostly tape, reel-to-reel to mini-disc was huge. Because I used to have, whether I was the mixer or the sound designer, pieces of cues everywhere, you know, with a little leader tape and marked on the leader what it was. And, you know, when you're editing, of course, you have to remember where everything is and find it. And you're not in a studio with all this stuff. You're in the back of the theater. And then going to Minidisc and having all of this in front of you inside electronically, it being the same thing. You cut this in the middle, you move this part away, you move that part away, and you stick something in between those two parts and put them together. Is To be able to do that without um, physically cutting tape is was huge, 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 huge. And now we mostly use samplers, which are even um, not necessarily easier to use than Minidisc, but more reliable. And I would assume now with with computers that the audio control boards are all computerized so that you can duplicate every performance exactly as as you want it. Well, that that goes for sound effects. Uh But every singer doesn't sing the same every night, and every band member doesn't play the same. And every since, you know, there's a lot of subbing in the orchestra pit. And so you have different musicians, musicians, different performances, you have understudies, you have people not feeling well, people feeling great, mm-hmm. you know, um, audiences which are very vocal and getting everybody really charged and audiences that aren't. And so it's very, very different. Hum- humid house, dry house, it's different and it's up to the operator, the mixer, 
to change levels. So we we don't we do have computerized boards, but what it's done for us is if you have say 150 inputs and that's cast mics, sound effects, orchestra mics. Now what we do generally is the mixer will stand in front of 12 faders and when you push a button the computer tells you what's on what fader. So all the we used to have 150 faders and you had to manipulate them. Now you can get them all to change. So you you only operate from the 12 faders in front of you. Simplifies it quite a bit, I would think. It does, yeah. So one fader at one point could be the women's chorus, for mm-hmm. instance. And in the next scene, it's Glinda. Mm-hmm. And in the next scene, that's the sound of the water rushing over the thing. And this, you know, so it's it's uh, it makes it easier, and it makes it easier to deal with multiple microphones and multiple inputs. And how about in a big production number where everybody's singing and dancing and running around and getting out of breath? Do you ever pre-record some of the vocals so they don't have to sing it out of breath? We oh, it's do- the Milli Vanilli question. <laughs> well, <laughs> we do sometimes. We call it click track, uh-huh. but it's not uh, like we, there's none in Wicked, for instance. Uh, Actors Equity doesn't like us to do it very much <laughs> because, of course, it it makes uh, you hire less people. It, it's done on some shows, and generally, it's my experience. It's not done to fool anybody. It's done for reasons. You know, when you just can't get a big chorus sound because they're running around, because they have costumes on that weigh 100 pounds a piece and they, you know, that's usually why it's done. And it's restricted enough by the unions now that that probably, and I don't know other shows and how much they use, but probably no more than one or two numbers in any show is pre-recorded. I read a sound designer say that one of the greatest successes in sound design is when people aren't aware of the sound design. Do you think that's true? Is that that your greatest achievement is is for your work to just be there, but people aren't aware of it? Yes, I think that if you're thinking about the sound, then you, you're you're not thinking about the words you're hearing. Hmm. If it gets a little too loud, and you think, "Geez, that hurts my ear," or "That's uncomfortable," then you've just missed lyrics. Or a little too soft and you can't hear it. Or a little too soft and you can't hear it. And, you know, unfortunately everybody wants to hear differently, which makes it difficult because one person's loud is another person's soft. You've mentioned already as we've been talking vanities uh, at Pasadena Playhouse shortly and uh, possibly in New York later this season. What other projects do you have coming up? Um, Pal Joey at Studio 54 for The Roundabout with Joe Mantello directing, who directed Wicked. We often ask actors if there are things they'd like to do. As a sound designer, are there projects you'd like to be able to take on? Yeah, I'd like to do South Pacific right now at the Vivian Boma. (laughs) (laughs) Why? My friend Scott Laird did such a great job designing the show. But why? Because there's 30 people in the orchestra. Because there's a director who who believed in making natural sound. And I think they have scored so big. It's, yeah, I want to do that show. (laughs) Do you see more of those shows coming to Broadway now with the success of South Pacific? Wouldn't that be nice? But I don't think, you know, 30 pieces is tough to, I don't think a regular venue could afford that. You have to remember, it's a not-for-profit venue. It's a not-for-profit venue, right? Right. 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 And also all those orchestra pits have disappeared under the stage. There's not room for them. Yeah, that's another thing. Or they get built out for the particular show because they want the actors closer to the audience. 
Well, Tony, I think that's a good point to wrap up and to thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thanks, Tony. It's my great pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks, Tony. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.